0: season, we have been away from John's Gospel for, I think, four weeks now, so I am eager to get back to it and make further progress, so we turn to John chapter 8, John chapter 8 this morning, and we will pick up essentially where we left off with a little bit of review here. Jesus is in the middle of a heated conversation with the Jews of tabernacles. That conversation is going to reach a boiling point when Jesus turns the conversation to the issue of true freedom. The Jews were living in a state of political subjugation to the Roman Empire. The Jews have been actually much of their history, been annexed, of various political powers, many of them brittle, Abraham's physical descendants had been subjugated by Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, and now Rome. Nevertheless, the Jews viewed themselves as free. Their political situation was the opposite of ours in America, and yet they thought they were free. Jesus points out that they are not so free as they think, but not because they lack our American freedoms. It's really crucial that we understand what Jesus means by the term free. If Jesus were speaking to Americans, living with our enormous political freedoms, many more freedoms than many people all around the world today, he would say precisely the same thing he said to the Jews. You are not so free as you think. What sort of freedom, then, is Jesus talking about? Well, let's review just a bit, beginning with verse 31. And then today we'll work all the way down through verse 47. verse 31, we read, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, what kind of freedom is Jesus talking about? Well, true freedom comes from embracing the words of Jesus. Whether you are a politically oppressed Jew living under the thumb of Rome, or a rich American singing patriotic hymns at a presidential rally, you equally need the same truth. What you need are the words. Jesus spoke. But the Jews disagree, so keep reading. Verse 33, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verse 36, of course, contains some of Jesus' most famous words. But again, what kind of freedom is Jesus talking about? Clearly, he's not talking about merely being a physical descendant of Abraham. That actually is a false basis for freedom. Likewise, American citizenship is a false basis. Basis for true freedom. Jesus argues that true freedom is freedom from what? Freedom from your sin. You're either a slave enslaved to sin, or you're freed by Christ. Those are Jesus' options, and that's what Jesus explains further now in verses 37 through 40. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. And you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do not have I'm sorry, and you do what you haven't heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Well, his argument is really straightforward. You think you're free because of your physical lineage going back to Abraham, but in fact, your wicked actions betray you. Did Abraham go around murdering people who told the truth? Certainly not. So, his implication is simple. Unlike Abraham, you Jews, well, you are a slave to sin. Your physical lineage won't do you any good in the final reckoning. And, friends, neither will your American birth certificate. Now, watch what Jesus does next. The Jews want to discuss further their paternity in Abraham, so Jesus prays along. Verse 41. You are doing the works your father did. Well, that could go either way. If Abraham was their father, this could be taken as praise. But of course, that's not what Jesus means. And the Jews know it. And so they fire back with an insult. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even... An insult does a couple things. First of all, it calls into question the unusual circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. The friends, if the Jews did not recognize Jesus' miracles, they certainly did not recognize his virgin birth or virgin various Christmas sermons that I've preached in the years, I've cautioned us against adopting what I call the Thomas Kinkade Hobby Lobby Hallmark Christmas card, idyllic view of Christmas. Looking back on Bethlehem from our modern perspective, we like the hallow of the whole scene it just sort of glows off the Christmas card, and the Christmas card is overpriced anyway. It's all so warm and so clean, Right? But Matthew's Gospel corrects this false impression. Jesus' birth brought enormous trouble into the world, including the bloodthirsty murder of Bethlehem's infants. And don't forget that Joseph's initial response was to assume that Mary had been immoral. We all know that virgins do not bear children, Right? apart from angelic intervention, Joseph would have just put her away. And don't forget that the angel of the Lord appeared privately to Joseph in a dream by night. He did not announce to the world that Mary would be impregnated by the Holy Spirit. So given all that, judging from John 8, Jesus likely spent much of his childhood with a lingering suspicion of infidelity associated with his birth. He did, after all, come to identify with sinners. So here we are some 30 years later, and the Jews still view him as an illegitimate child, the product of a sinful union. That's the first thing. The second thing to notice in the Jews' soul is that it raises the question of paternity to a higher level. Since Abraham was their physical father, they assume that God ultimately is their father too. Right? It's like, if Abraham is my father, well then God is my grandfather. Look at verse 39. The Jews claim Abraham was their father. Now since that's that's true, the Jews believe that verse 41 follows naturally. We have one father, even God.
1: If Abraham was a child of God and we are
0: his children, then we too are children of God. That's their assumption. The Jews pride in their physical heritage led them to conclude that their spiritual heritage is secure. But that, friends, is an unwarranted leap. And yet, it's a leap that people make all the time, even down to our own times. It's not unusual for someone to assume that he is spiritually secure. Because he was born Catholic. Or because he was baptized by Christian parents as a baby. And for people to say, well, I'm Irish Catholic for many generations. Or I'm Italian. Or Catholic all the way back. It's if I'm saved. Well, in many parts of the world today, there are people whose spiritual security is bound up in their paternity. You look at Islam today. There are Muslim people who trace their lineage back through several generations. Perhaps their name is Muhammad or Khadijah, and they think, well, I'm safe. It's all about my lineage. And Jesus says that is a false, a false basis for security. And Jesus challenges the assumption that physical heritage of any kind can establish spiritual heritage. So in verse 42, he offers a rebuttal. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Now friends, Jesus could not be more clear. I am from God. Therefore, if God is truly your Father, you will in fact love me. That's how it works. Jesus is blunt. Tracing your physical lineage back to Abraham does not mean that you can trace your spiritual lineage back to God. It is perhaps a little more difficult for us in the West to really appreciate how Jesus' claim must have sounded to the Jews. We live in a very individualistic culture where we celebrate our autonomy. We celebrate our personal rights. We celebrate individualism, and we tend to put a lot less emphasis on our heritage, on paternity, on paternity. But it is the case in many parts of the world. Heritage is everything. Your culture, your heritage, your family is everything. And this is certainly true for the Jew. My heritage, says the Jew, is all important. I can trace my lineage all the way back
1: to Abraham
0: some 2,000 years ago. I have no idea who my ancestor was 2,000 years ago. But the Jews did, right? But that is the assumption that Jesus challenges. Your heritage does not matter if you are living in sin. That's the point that he's making. Now, for just a moment here, let's just go a little bit deeper. And let's reflect on the sheer audacity of Jesus' claim in Jewish culture. Jesus implies in verse 42 that he is a person worthy of supreme love. If you love God, you should equally love Jesus. Look at the text. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. Now, normally when someone goes about complaining that he or she is on love, we chalk it up to over, an over-inflated view of oneself, Right? You have a child, and he's over here pounding in the corner and complaining, no one ever loves me, all right? all right? You children, you've all done that. We've all done it at some point, right? We're having this sort of self-indulgent pity party. Of course you love the child, but you're not going to concede to that foolishness, right? The point is, normally there is something quite wrong, quite self-absorbed about the person who claims a lack proper love. They're just, they're just self-absorbed. ever loves them like they should. But that, of course, is not what's going on here at all. Jesus is not arbitrarily seeking love like a neglected child. Not at all. Jesus' statement really is quite astonishing. Who among the Jews, and all believers in God for that matter, wouldn't agree that God is the one person in all the universe that is truly worthy of love? Friends, there are millions of people all through the ages who have devoted their fortunes their health, their families, their comforts, their very lives to God. I of a burning sense that love for God is more important than anything else than love. He is the one being in all the universe worthy of supreme love. So think of that. Now imagine a man walks up to you he just inserts himself into that relationship between you and God. As if you love God, well, then you should love me too. Well, why? Because I came from God. Imagine somebody actually saying that to you. That's what Jesus does. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. He just inserts himself right into the middle of that relationship between humans and God. As if he is worthy of the same love. Friends, don't miss the obvious application have made this application that points along the way in John's Gospel, and I feel really compelled to just do it again. Let's think about our American deist context. There are all sorts of people all over our country today who claim to love God. All sorts of people who claim to believe in God. There are all sorts of people who would talk about, in God we trust. Christian nationalists has long viewed our nation's success as owing to God's good providence. God bless America. But how would you assess whether your fellow American is a true lover of God? Well, the answer is really very simple. Do they love Jesus? Well, that's the answer. Do they love Jesus? If they love Jesus jesus then yes indeed they love the true god that is Jesus' answer again and again and again i recently met a man at the gym where i'd gone for some exercise this guy was a great big hulking gorilla sized man with arms about the size of bowling balls he was clearly the biggest guy in the gym by a long shot really tall really big he just seemed like this really kind, polite, friendly man, a joyful person. So I sort of passed him, and I struck up a conversation with him. It lasted for a long time, actually. And as we talked, it became very clear that the man believed in God. Well, the fact is, everyone in Greenville believes in God, right? I mean, this is Greenville, South Carolina. So, I, I put a question to him very bluntly. I said to him, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And the man's whole countenance is lit up. He said, oh yes, Jesus is everything. My Lord, my Savior, my God, my life. I love Jesus. He responded, all right, well, what are you dealing with? I mean, I can't with a man's heart, but I would assume this is a man who truly loves God because he knows who Jesus is. He loves Jesus. Sometimes I don't get that response. I get a response more like, well, Jesus is cool. Okay, well, do you love Jesus? Well, he's really cool, okay? I'm not sure what that means. Well, don't back away from Jesus' claim in verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. That's how you know. Are you a child of God? Well, do you love Jesus. Well, do the Jews understand anything that Jesus is trying to communicate? And the answer is no. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Clearly, the Jews remain clueless about what Jesus is trying to say to them. Now, is this because Jesus is somehow a poor communicator? Well, I don't think that's the case. would wager that Jesus is the best teacher in all of human history. But notice how that last phrase has been translated. You cannot, look at the words, bear to hear my word. It's not that they simply cannot hear. Rather, there is a volitional element in their failure to hear. They don't want to hear the truth. You can't bear to hear my word. they approach Jesus with such prejudice and hostility that no amount of discussion at this point is going to change your mind. Jesus' words will simply not be persuasive if there are a heart or a second in opposition to God's truth. Friends, Jesus' own words, think of that, Jesus' own words at this point are not persuading them. You cannot bear to hear my word. Now, this does not call into question Jesus' sovereignty, not at all. But it does point the need in the heart of every sinner for a supernatural awakening to understanding God's truth. Numerous occasions through the years, I've had students approach me after a class, I stop by my office, and they often have a very real burden to reach a family member for Christ or a good friend. And enough, I've had enough of those conversations to know that they start to follow a, a predictable pattern. First, the student describes the person that she is trying to reach, and she tells me the whole story. She's usually quite involved and quite interesting. And she'll bring me right to the point where the conversation stands at the moment. And then comes this inevitable question. I've heard this many, many, many times. Here's the question. What would you say to my friend? As if somehow I've got all the answers. Or how would you answer my brother? How would you answer my father who's not a believer? As if coming to me, you know, you've got this oracle that has all the answers. And, and, and I know they don't think that I really have this magical formula of words that works every time. That's not what they're thinking, but their question sort of gestures in that direction. And that was a little bit badly, but I'm like, I, I'm going to disappoint you, all right? I want you to understand that I'm going to disappoint you because Jesus spoke to people, and they could not bear to hear his words. So I don't have some sort of formula that just works every time. My heart just really goes out of those students because they're just so earnest in the desire to see a loved one come to Christ. I that's really commendable, but I just find myself thinking, well, would Jesus himself have these words that just persuaded them? Well, verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Sometimes you just have to simply embrace the fact that a person in his current state of hostility is not going to hear. The person in that current state of hostility is simply not going to hear the Word. That happens. Even Jesus' words. So I often find myself having to say something like, Well, you're just going to have to entrust that person to the Lord in prayer. No persuasion won't do. God is going to have to break the hard ground so that seed can find true logic. I mean, I can can keep throwing seed at the ground, right? God has to break up that ground. And God alone can do that. Now, in verse 44, Jesus comes at long last to the point that he's really been driving up for some time. These are harsh words. Verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and a hoddler. I was reflecting this passage this week. I thought, can, can, can you imagine any any harsher words that Jesus could have spoken? Your father is the devil. I, I'm trying to imagine saying that to someone. I've never said that to anyone, to the best of my knowledge. But Jesus did. That would be deemed hate speech in our culture, for sure. But Jesus said it. Ultimately, there are two options. Either God is your father or the devil is. So setting aside your physical lineage from Abraham or from whoever, there really are two families in the end. There is the family of God and there is the family of the devil. Friends, these are the words of the Lord Jesus. I I didn't write these. I didn't speak these. So how would you know which family you belong to? The answer, in this context, comes down to your desires. Look at your desires. Jesus says, your will is to do your Father's desires. That's verse 44. Your will is to do your Father's desires. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. And here are these Jews, and they're seeking to murder Jesus. Well, what other conclusion can you come to? That they are children of the devil. Their desires are aligned with the devil's desires. They are children of the devil. Now, it's possible that Jesus refers here to the murder of Abel by Cain, which happened really at the beginning of human history. The devil probably was in the details But actually, it might be more likely that Jesus is referencing an earlier episode where the devil specifically labored to bring about the fall and the death of the human race by tempting Adam and Eve. He robbed our parents of spiritual life and ultimately physical life also. And I say that because the fact that Jesus goes on to refer to the devil as being not only a murderer, but a liar and the father of lies, that seems to point back beyond Abel and Cain, Cain, and Abel, all the way back to Adam and Eve. Satan secured their fall by lying, by contradicting the words of God. God said, You will surely die, and the devil retorted, You will not surely die. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Well, you think about it, either God is a liar or the devil is. Likewise, when your desire is to lie,
1: you are professing your family
0: allegiance to either God or the devil. So Jesus clearly insists that one's desires are a true indication of his paternity. You might just ask yourself this question this morning, whose child are you? Well, to talk about your desires. The first great awakening swept through the American colonies in 1734. There were indeed many, many false confessions of faith. Jonathan Edwards, America's great theologian and historian of the awakening, undertook to understand the nature of true conversion. He wanted to make sure that he distinguished between True conversion in all those false professions of faith. So how would you know? True conversion, Edwards insisted, does not come down to merely walking around or even praying a prayer. In fact, in those days they didn't even walk aisles. True conversion, says Edwards, involves a change of affections. A change of affections. Our desires change when our family identity changes. That's how you know. Now, I want to take just a moment here, You do have to turn there, you're welcome to if you want, and rehearse something we discovered in Romans chapter 7, because this may help. I do feel like we need to clarify a little bit here, because Christians can really get tripped up on this. When you become a believer, and you enter the family of God, Right? Your desires should change. That is true. However, your old self, the flesh, does not disappear. And this is where Christians can really get tripped up. You still have these old carnal desires and affections that live inside your heart. And so if your desires are supposed to change and you look inside your heart and you you have these wicked desires, that are there that you think, well, maybe I didn't even become a believer. But friends, there is what Paul calls the flesh in Romans 7, and it is that irredeemable part of you. It's that part of you that you cannot change through moral reformation of your flesh, and it doesn't work that way. Rather, the only solution is to kill it, to kill it dead. This is what Paul says to the Colossians. You have to mortify your flesh. He doesn't say work with it and try to make it better little by little. He says mortify it. What is it down. It's still there. You've got to kill it then. It's that irritable part of you that doesn't get improved gradually. and has to be killed. So friends, don't be confused. If you come to Christ and you want those desires to be changed for those old fleshy desires are still lurking inside your heart. Listen to what Paul writes, Romans 7 verse 15, "For I do not understand my own actions. for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And have you experienced that? I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I do it because I hate it. That's Paul. He also writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. What? I thought you were born again. I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then he clarifies, That is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Does that sound schizophrenic? Exactly. You've got that old man living inside of there. It's the flesh and you lack the ability to carry out what is right. You know it's right, but you just seem powerless. However, Paul at least speaks of, quote, here's his words, a desire to do what is right. And that's what I want you to focus on. Where does that desire come from? That's the all-important question. Suddenly, in the middle of all this flesh, he has this desire, at least, to do what is right. And friends, That new desire did not come from the devil. The devil does not put a new desire into the human heart to do what is right. And that is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. So understand this, follow this, they both, the believer and the unbeliever, they both have wicked desires in their hearts. It's true. But in addition the believer, the man who's been born again, has at least a new desire to do what is right. Even if he often fails, he has new desires. That's what Edwards is pointing to. There are some new affections in there that you didn't have before. And Paul continues in Romans 7, verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil idea I do not want is what I keep on doing. That if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do, but sin that dwells with me. Except there's these two people in there now. Again, he sounds schizophrenic. There's these two warring selves. But actually, this is part of the good news. What if there was only one self? What if there was only one self? Well, the fact is, every last person born on this planet is born in Adam. And so, if you have one self, you have the inanimate fallen nature. That's who you are. You have that old man, and that's the one self. But what if there's two competing selves in there? That's the new man. So, Paul also writes in verse 22, For I delight in the law of God, which the old man doesn't do. I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see in my members of the law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members or in my body. wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. So Paul acknowledges that somewhere in there he has found this new delight in the law of God. It's there I delight in God's truth. And yet, he quickly acknowledges that the, that, the, that the potency of the flesh remains. But
1: clearly,
0: something's happened there. You have been born again as new affections, new desires, new delights begin to come to light in you. So, friends, if that is you, all right, then you don't have to just sort of wallow in despair that you aren't even a true believer. The job at that point is under the help and the influence of the Spirit to mortify the flesh and to live out the new you. Now, I really, really hope that digression clarifies. You can have a spark in your heart that you wants to go out and murder somebody, right? You can have a spark in your heart that says, Let me go tell a lie. That's the old man. But is there a desire to do what's right? So Jesus does indeed speak of our desires as an indication of our family relationship, our new family relationship. And friends, when you are when you are unregenerate and you simply desire what is evil, it's an indication that you are part of the devil's family. You can lie and there's no remorse. You can cheat and come under no conviction. You can murder without compunction. You can steal without guilt. There's just simply no good desire there to compete with that old man. But when God is your Father, those affections change.
1: Now, given all that, follow very carefully what Jesus
0: says next. Verse 45. But because I tell the truth... You do not believe me. Again, he's speaking to these unregenerate people. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And notice Jesus is not saying, although I tell you the truth. Jesus is actually saying this, because I tell you the truth. Think of the difference between although and because. The first clause is not a concession. It is a causal statement. Because. Because I'm speaking the truth, that's why you don't believe. That's amazing. I can't believe the truth, right? No, because I'm speaking the truth, you can't get it. Jesus is actually speaking of their fundamental incapacity to recognize truth. You do not understand the truth precisely because it is the truth. That's what he's saying. And this is the harsh reality of someone who has been just blinded by the devil. He cannot understand the truth when it's just staring him in the face. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's standing right there in their presence. And they cannot comprehend them. Now Jesus follows up that statement with a dramatic question in verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? And again, would you consider the audacity of this claim if it were made by a mere mortal Jesus has already claimed that he is worthy of the same love as God the Father. Well, if that were enough, now he asserts his own sinlessness. Now, understand the Jews did indeed believe that Jesus was a sinner. And that's why they were seeking to kill him. In fact, in the next chapter, Jesus is going to heal a blind man. In the middle of their second interrogation, the blind man, seeking to learn what happened to him, the Jews revealed their bias. In fact, if you just glance over at John 9 and verse 24 and look at the text, John nine twenty-four. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Good glory to God, we know that this man, who's that Jesus, we know that Jesus is a sinner. So clearly they think that Jesus is a sinner. this is very curious. They cannot reasonably deny that God, that that Jesus has opened this man's eyes. But they don't want Jesus to get into the credit. No, no, he's just a sinner. Don't give him any credit at all. But this is interesting. They they never identify a sin that Jesus commits. Where's the sin? In fact, Jesus has just healed a blind man. That's what they're upset about. And this is a pattern you see all the ways of the ministry of Jesus. He goes around doing good things, and they keep accusing me of being a sinner, but they can't find anything. They can find nothing at all. And Jesus, of course, knew that it was nothing but cross-bias that just fueled their interest in paying some sin on him. And that is why he asked the question in verse 46, Which one of you convicts me of sin? There's nothing. There's nothing there to secure a legitimate conviction. He never sinned. But clearly, the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with the Jews and their stubborn disbelief. And that's why Jesus proceeds in the remainder of verse 46 to assert, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe? Why do you not believe me? When you're covered with the truth, your choice is to believe it or to embrace some there really is no alternative. Either you're going to embrace the truth, or you will embrace a lie. So again, as I've mentioned previously, when it really comes down to the world at large, the world at large is guilty of one great sin. There is one great sin that will ultimately damn any soul. And what sin is it? It is the sin of unbelief testament is very clear that God redeems people out of all sorts of debauchery, idolatry, illicit sexuality, carnality, false religion—you name it. I mean, He redeems us out of all that. But if you're going to if you're going to persist in your sin of disbelief, there is no hope for you. There's no hope. How then would we know that someone has overcome the sin of disbelief? How would you know? Well, just keep reading. Verse 47. Whoever is not of God hears. He hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's it. When a person has been truly born again, when a person has truly come to Christ, he suddenly just responds differently to the word of God. He hears it very differently. If you're not a believer, you simply are incapable of hearing the words of God. So friends, let's take this right back to the beginning where we began all the way back in verse 21. What exactly is true freedom? What does it mean to be free? Verse 21, Jesus said to the Jews who believed on him, this is not true belief at this point, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So put that together with verse 47. In verse 47, to hear God's Word is to be God's child. Likewise, in verse 41, to abide in Jesus' Word is to be a true disciple. When you embrace God's words, when you embrace Jesus' words, and that's when you become a true disciple. And that, my friends, is true freedom. So what would true freedom look like in first century Israel? Well, deliverance from Roman oppression, right? No. It is true freedom. Embrace the word of God. And what does that look like in our first century, 21st century American context? What is true freedom? A bigger military? More opportunities for financial prosperity? I am very thankful to live in a free country. But again, the same thing is true. True freedom is a matter of saying the words of God and experiencing deliverance from our sin. That that is the freedom the gospel offers you. Freedom, freedom from sin. And what does that look like? Here's what it looks like. You're taken out of one family and you're put into a new family. You're taken out of the devil's family and you're put in the family of God. And when you're put in that family of God, you have these new desires that well up in your heart. A desire for what is right and good and holy. Now in conclusion, I want to speak yeah. to the children for just a moment. And I just want They're to be very, very clear with our kids, yeah. kids, with our children. That you are not a Christian simply because you were born in a Christian home or because your parents are Christian. That is not how you become a Christian. I think your parents have probably explained this to you, but I just want to reiterate mm-hmm. it. You are not a Christian simply because you go to church with your family or go to Sunday school. We have some wonderful teachers around here, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You're not a Christian simply because you were born into or adopted into a Christian environment, a Christian culture, a Christian family. Actually, what Jesus is saying here to our children, born in a Christian family, is that actually you belong to the family of, the devil if you're not a believer. you realize that? You actually, you actually belong to the family of the devil if you're not a true believer. And how would you know that? Well, when I was a child, raised in a Christian home and Christian church and Christian school, I came to realize this because I told a lot of lies. A whole lot of lies. And the devil is a father of liars and I fought with my brothers and sisters. And I realized that there's something wrong in my heart. And yes, I was raised in a Christian church and a Christian school and a Christian home, but I had to come and look inside my heart and see that it was truly sinful. I had to understand that as yet, I did not truly belong to the family of God. So, if that's you, what are you supposed to do? Well, there's some really good news. Jesus said, allow the little children to come to me. Jesus was not a preacher, merely for the adults. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And how do you come to Christ? Well, the best way probably for you to do that is to go to your parents. God has given you Christian parents who actually understand you better than you think they do. And who actually understand sin better than you think they do. Because they've lived with it for a whole lot longer than you. Your parents have lived with us in nature for 40 years, 45 years, 30 years. I don't know. How old are your parents? All right. And they understand sin better than you do. And they understand the gospel. So let me encourage you children. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And they will take you out of the family of the devil, which is a terrible place to be, and place you into the family of God. And i certainly am happy to talk with you. I know Pastor John would be happy to talk with you. But really, it would be very, very good if your parents are believers and you would go to your parents and talk with them about that. Talk with them about that today. Would you do that? Okay. Well, let's pray. Father, we do pray specifically for our children this morning. And we ask that each and every one of our children would learn not to look to their spiritual heritage. As an indication of their spiritual security. And that each and every one of our children would look to Christ and the Christ alone as a solution for their sin. Lord, as adults, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the gospel, we thank you for the indwelling of the Spirit, and we confess again our sin. And we ask that you would awaken again in our hearts' desires for what is right and good. As we live in a world full of sin, we can become so numb, and we can fall backwards and backslide. But Lord, just rekindle in us those desires for what are good, what things are good and holy and pure, we pray. We ask this for Christ's sake.